We're going to continue in our series, part three of a doc, our doctrine series. And so if you've been here, week one, we looked at the Trinity and the nature of who God is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And last week, we looked at the doctrine of revelation, what the Bible teaches about itself. And then this evening, we'll look at creation. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you meet me at Genesis chapter one? If you don't have a Bible, why don't you slip up your hands, leave it raised really high, um, and one of the guys will get you a Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. If you do own a Bible, but you forgot it, go ahead and take a Bible and just put it back on the shelf on your way, your way back out. Um, let, let, let me start first when we, think, when we talk about creation and this. Um, the doctrine of creation in itself has had a lot of controversy. Um, this controversy didn't really begin until about two centuries ago. Before that, all Christians believe and still do that God created and that God himself um, is the author of life. He is the beginning and there's none before him, which we'll get to. Christians believe that God created this world as a gift to us. Um, however, now there's been a lot of controversies and we have different Christians that have different views of creation. And so as we said from week one, what we're not going to do during our time here is try to prove or disprove, so to say, the, the doctrines that we have here. We would suggest that you get the study guides and get the books. Now, me personally, if there is a week that you should buy the study guide and a week that you should buy the book for, it would be creation. Um, I spent the bulk of my time in study reading more and more articles this week than I've ever read, and 95% of what I studied, I'm not even going to talk about this morning. So I want you guys to go through that same painful process that I did so you guys can go ahead and just buy the book and then buy the study guide and learn a lot. So having said that, in Christianity and within our church at Redemption, we have what we call open hands and closed hand issues. Uh, closed hand issues are doctrines and beliefs about Christianity that, that you just have to believe to be on leadership at this church. And part of that is the authority of scripture. That what we talked about last week, that God's word is God's word and that we should submit, submit our whole life to it. Um, an open hand issue would come to creation. Uh, we would be in agreement, all of us, that God created it, that he spoke it to existence, that he's sovereign and all those good things, but, but how he did it um, and when he did it. So questions like how old is the earth? How young is the earth? Was it a literal six day, 24 hour and so forth? We believe Bible believing, Jesus loving people will differ on different sides of where they are. Um, and so having said that, I would say this, the creation account in Genesis one and two um, is not written to answer the questions of science. Here, here's what I mean. When we come to any text in the scripture, when we come to the Bible in itself, every single one of us, we have to ask, what is the author's intent for writing this? And so contextually, when Genesis 1 was inked, it was written by a man named Moses. Moses wrote the first books of the Bible, first five books, called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And when he wrote it, he wrote it to a people. So its original audience were the people of Israel, the Israelites, who had just been rescued out of slavery. Um, they came from a place that was polytheistic. They had many gods. And here they were now at the foot of Sinai. And then God, by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that we see hovering over creation in Genesis 1, and two begins to tell him about himself. So again, Genesis 1 and 2 are not made to answer questions of science, though we believe that Christianity and science are not in conflict. In fact, because we have a biblical worldview of a guy who created, we encourage people to enter into the sciences for the name and fame of Jesus Christ. But Genesis 1 and 2 was a theological narrative, and it's more about the who and the why than the when. So let's jump into this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was all over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Before we jump into God's word, why don't you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your good creation. You declared it good, and so it is. And so as we come to your text this evening, Father, I pray first and foremost that you would remove me and that we would end up at the cross and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us see who you are, the God of creation, that we would see your attributes and see why you created it. And Father, how can we respond as your people and some who are here who are not yet your people? So God, give us grace, Lord, that we may understand. Humble us by your word. Send us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, there was a good movie that came out called August Rush. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie. The movie's about an orphan kid, uh, doesn't know his mom, doesn't know his dad. He goes from orphan to orphan to orphan. But this particular kid has an amazing musical talent, amazing gift. In fact, he ends up on the streets playing with this homeless guy whose name is Wizard, played by Robin Williams. And this wizard guy begins to instruct him and guide him. And, and finally, this kid, he's constantly wanting to know where he's from. He wants to know his mom and he wants to know his dad, and yet he's he wants to know where does these gifts come from? Where do these amazing talents come from? And then there's a scene in the movie that I think is just so precious, and I will never forget it, and which, which wizard asks August Rush, and he says, what do you want to be in this world? And he goes, no, think about it. What do you want to be in this world? Just close your eyes and say it. What do you want to be? And then he responds, found. Like, I want to be found. The reason why that stuck out with me is because most of my counseling meetings, um, for a while I was a student pastor and I would meet with parents and then teenage girls or teenage boys, and one of the questions I would ultimately ask when they were just, just acting crazy, I would ask them, answer this question for me. Just answer, who are you? Not your name, not what you do, not what school you go to, but who are you? And nine out of ten times people would say, gosh, I, don't, I, I just don't know. And so the question of who are we, we can't answer first, like August Rush, until we know whose we belong to. It's not so much a question of who are we, but who do we belong to? And I believe at its basis, the doctrine of creation answers that question. Because the question of who we belong to is the same question that the Israelites were asking, the same question that they wanted to know at the foot of Mount Sinai. The world that they knew was a god of a poly, excuse me a world of polytheism where there were many gods. In Egypt there was a sun god, there was a sheep god. Many people that Pharaoh they thought that Pharaoh was a god. They were people who were under oppression and slavery. And all of a sudden Moses comes as a mediator of God, talks about this god. This god shows forth powerful miracles and all of a sudden they find themselves here in the foot of Mount Sinai saying, "Who are we and where are we going?" And the only way we can know who we are and where we're going is to know who's we, who we belong to. And so with that, God begins to speak in Genesis chapter 1. And as I said before, um, what we're going to look at this evening is the who of creation and then the why. First and foremost, who do we see God to be? Genesis chapter 1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing that we see about God is that our God is pre-existent, meaning he's eternally uncaused, that nothing is before God. Um, God, nothing happens before God. In the beginning was God. So before there was time, before there was space, there was God. Nothing started him, but everything that is created flows from him because he is eternal. We have a God who's pre-existent. As the text continues to flow, we see that we have a powerful God. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. As as we continue to read the text, what we see is our God is powerful, a mighty God. And so ultimate times we'll see his power expressed through his control, or we would say his sovereignty. Now, the sovereignty of God is not something that that we just can swallow sometimes. It's something that we debate and argue about, but it's something that's true in Scripture, and it means that God is in control. One of the best ways for me that, that I think that we can learn theology is through songs. It's the reason why the songs that we sing are profoundly theological and accurate. Um, so what we're doing at my household is, we have, I have two little boys, and um, one's just, just really little. And so he doesn't really know what's going on. He just knows milk and changed my diapers, right? And so two boys, Noah and Eli. Noah we call peanut butter, butter, short for peanut butter, because his skin complexion looks like peanut butter. And the littlest one is, the littlest one is, um, I've nicknamed him Pup, because when I hold him, he looks like a puppy, right? And so we're trying to teach Noah, I'm trying to teach Noah the sovereignty of God. And so the song that we sing is a song that most of us sing, and it's, he's got the whole world in his hands, right? So who has the whole world in his hand? You guys are really good. So Noah's having problems with this because what happens is when, when Garth gets done singing here the first three songs in the morning, he goes to the children's ministry, and then he sits down and he plays with them. And all these kids, they start worshiping him. It's ridiculous. And so, so the other night, I'm saying, Noah, and not just the other night, this happens over and over again. I say, Noah, okay, buddy, who's got the whole world in his hand? And he goes, Garth. <laughs> and I said, first, it's Garth not Garth, and he doesn't. Son, listen, you can get the doctrine book. It's only $15. Ask your mom and she'll... <laughs> but it's something that we try to teach. And in creation, we see God showing his sovereignty or in essence, his power through many ways. The first way is, is in the, the first verse, we see in the beginning, God created. God shows his power first through creation. Now that word created is the, the Hebrew word bara. I, I don't know Hebrew, but I just read some stuff. It's bara, which means creation from nothing. Meaning God is the only one who can bara. Later in, in Genesis, we'll see the word created used, and it's the word asa, which means to form or to fashion. Um, God does that, and he does it with the way he sets up the world, and we can also asa. We never bara. We don't create out of nothing. When we, when we create things, we take raw material that's already in existence. God, who is eternal and independent, he created out of nothing. So us is asa. It'd be like us going to Ikea and buying something... It'd be like you guys going to Ikea and buying something from Ikea and making it. Um, the only thing that I ever bought from Ikea, um, we just don't use uh, because there was all these parts left over afterwards. And so I was trying to convince my wife they were just extras um, and they, they gave us too many, but don't sit in that, right? We, we take raw materials and we put them together. So God shows forth his power and that he speaks and he creates out of nothing. And then the next thing that we see in his power is in the power of his word. When you look through your text here in verse 3, and God said in verse 4, and verse 6, God said in verse 8, and God called, and God said over and over again, 10 times we hear, and God said, and then followed by, and it was so. And so we see God expressing his power through his word, the very power of his word. Um, Genesis, or excuse me, 1 Peter lets us know that we are born again only by the power of his word. He never creates other than the power of his word. We see his power over and over again through his creation. And the reason why I think that this has massive implications on us is because in his power, we see that God is transcendent. Now, what that means is God is separate from creation. He's over creation. 
and he's also imminent. So the same God that is powerful enough to be separate from creation, he's not dependent upon creation. Creation doesn't limit him. He's not limited to the laws that he has, um, that he's built into creation, he's over it, but he's imminent, meaning he draws near. Now here's the implications of this. First, one false teaching is the teaching of deism. And what deism teaches is this, is that God is basically like a watchmaker who creates the watch, he's powerful enough to do it, and then he just pulls himself away and lets it go. So he's a powerful God, but he's not a God who draws near. The other would be pantheism, which basically says that God is in creation and he's everywhere, but God is in creation and creation is in God. So what that means is God is in this standing, God is in this Bible, and God is in us, and God, it's just he's everywhere. So we have a God who's everywhere, but he's not powerful enough. To me, at the end of the day, um, when it comes to the doctrine of creation, as much as I believe that science is important and that people should engage in the science, at the end of the day, what we need is to know a God who's transcendent and who's imminent. Here's why. When we see hurricanes and tornadoes ravishing people's homes and people's lives, when we see earthquakes that kills thousands of people, when, when we, like, we, we go to a funeral that I went to this Thursday of, of parents who lost their six-month-old child, the, the words that they said at the funeral, the words that the, pe- the preacher said at the funeral over and over again was, this stinks, this is horrible, it hurts, and how could we deal with this other than a big God who's big enough to enter in? Amen? The, the, the implications of God's power and the power of his word when he exercises power has so much to do with the way that we deal in life, the way that we can deal with suffering, the way that we can deal with shame, the way that we can deal with hurt, because ultimately we have a God who's big enough and a God who draws near. Now, ultimately, we'll see this even clearly once we see the incarnation of Jesus Christ, how creator became creation and not only understand suffering, but he himself suffers with us and promises to end this suffering. In the creation account, the next thing we see about God is that God is a purposeful God, that he creates. Um, in, the, in the beginning, it said God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth is a Hebraic means of saying he created everything from top to bottom, from head to toe. He created the laws, government. He created everything that we see God created. Now, here is my belief on creation. In Genesis 1, when it says beginning, the word there is a Hebrew word. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I know what you guys are going to do, but it's spelled R-E space S-H-I-T, okay? That's why I'm not going to pronounce it. So, so, so the word there literally just means a starting point. And so afterwards, it doesn't say how much time it is. It doesn't say it could be moments or it could be many, many, many years. So I don't know if the world, I'm not exactly sure if the world is an old earth or a young earth. I believe that Genesis 1, my opinion, sees that it's open. It's open for translation. I can't, I don't really know. However, when Genesis 2 comes in, I believe that God now, he forms the world and he creates the world in six days. And they're days. I believe that they're 24-hour literal days. And the reason being is because he uses words like morning and evening, morning and evening. And then when we see this repeated in Exodus 20:11, when God gives Moses the commandments, he uses morning and evening, morning and evening. And we see his, his purpose in this. Days 1, 2, and 3, God forms. And, and days 4, 5, and 6, he fills. So days one two, one, two, and three, he creates the light, he creates the moon, and then he creates the sky, then he creates the, the sea, then he creates the land. So he forms environment. 
And he makes the context. And then days four, five, and six, we see this God who's a purposeful God. He fills the environment with inhabitants. So he puts birds in the sky and fish in the sea and creatures on the ground. We see that he is a God of purpose. And with the God of purpose, he's a God of order. And so by implication, what that means is everything that God creates has purpose. It's only when we understand who God is, God as creator, that we understand that our lives have meaning. We're not just some random, we're not random chance. We didn't just get here. We were here by design. We were here by God's creative power. We were here by God's purpose. There's a purpose in which God created us for, and which we'll look at in a second. And so we see God ultimately being, being a purposeful God, then he creates it. Days one, two, and three, he forms. Four, five, and six, he fills. And then lastly, what we see is that God is a perfect God, and he creates a perfect world. Over and over again, God says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, because creation in itself was a reflection of the purity and the holiness of God. Over and over and over, it's good, it's good. And so what that talks about, our God is our God is a perfect God. The definition for that is in him is nothing that is lacking. So God lacks nothing. And then what he creates is perfect, and so our world is good. And our world is still good. Though it's been marred by sin, the world is good. God created it that we may be able to enjoy it. Uh, So often as Christians, we are what I call Genesis 3 Christians. Genesis 3 is when the fall happens, and we talk about everything as if it's just, it's evil, it's bad, it's terrible, they're going to hell. I mean, everything is just like, everything's bad, and yet God says, it's good. One of the best illustrations a, a biblical scholar was talking to me about, he says, think of milk. Milk is milk. And then spoiled milk is still milk. It's just spoiled. That's the way creation is. It's marred by sin, but there's good components of it. So that means we can enjoy the sunshine. We, we can enjoy riding our bikes. We can enjoy being with our family. We can enjoy a nice glass of whatever, right? We can, we can, we can enjoy the things that God has given us. We can enjoy work. Now, would those things push back against us because of the fall, because of sin? Yeah, but what we see is a perfect God creates good. And by implication, A perfect God doesn't make mistakes. And so when it comes to us, God does not make mistakes. Uh, My my sister lives in a community where um, the predominant races there are um, Caucasian and and Hispanic. And my nephew, when he was in kindergarten, says, you know, I don't want to be black anymore because no one else is black. So obviously God must have made a mistake, right? And and when we're trying to talk to him about, like, why God made him that way, why God made him that way, and ultimately what, what I come to is this, like, God made you the way you're supposed to be. And that's just not for my nephew, that's for everyone. God made us or actively allowed us to be the way that we're supposed to be. This is clearly represented in the Gospels. When when the disciples are walking, they see a man who's handicapped, and they said to Jesus, hey, who sinned in this family that he should get this way? And Jesus says, oh, nothing, nothing went wrong. He's like this so that he would be, so he would glorify God. So God doesn't make mistakes no matter if we're short, we're skinny, we're blind, we're handicapped, we're tall, whatever it means, black, we're white. God has made us this way ultimately that we may bring glory to him. The best way, God has made us in the right way for us individually to bring bring God glory. And so we see the God behind creation is a purposeful God who is preexistent, who's imminent, he draws near, he's transcendent, he's powerful, and he's perfect, and he's beautiful. Now, the question after that is, so why did he create? So why, why did God create? What is the purpose of creation? What is the purpose? Now, in the catechism, 
which we really don't use that much anymore, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And you would answer, ultimately the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we were made to enjoy God by using, by the means of the creation in which he created. So would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43, maybe. Yes, 43.7. This is, this is what he says. Everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, and whom I have formed and made. If you turn back to the left, to Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, um, the psalm is speaking about creation and the purpose for creation and what it does. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then finally, if you flip all the way to the right, to Revelation chapter 4, we see again the purpose that God creates is for his glory. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your glory, excuse me, and by your will, they exist and were created. And so the, so the chief end of man is to glorify God. And so, so the so what to this message is God created us for a purpose, and the primary purpose ultimately is to bring glory to his name. But there's an issue. We, we were made to bring glory to God, but what we'll see in a couple of weeks here is that, that we, have been, we have been tainted by sin. And that glory in itself that was supposed to go to God has now been redirected. If you take your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, it most clearly, speaking about us and humanity, I think Paul states this clearly of what happens to our worship. Because though we're made to worship, we worship everything else but God. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Or excuse me, in verse 23 it says, No beginning in verse 21. He says for this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so what Paul communicates is this, the position, the position that we find ourselves in now, after seeing the God of creation, he says that we have suppressed the truth. The truth is God who has revealed himself through creation, and yet we have suppressed it, and now we've exchanged the truth for a lie. So we've exchanged God for a lie, and the lie in itself is that there is no God. Or if there is a God, creation and God are all one within itself. And so what Paul says, the worst thing that God can do, the worst thing the creator can do in terms for our humanity is to let us do what we would do apart from him. To let us live our lives and what we would do apart from him. Meaning we will still worship, but the things that we will worship will be the things of which he's created. We will elevate gifts overgiver, and we will elevate creation over creator. And we see this happening when it comes to worship. We, we, we worship basically three things that I put here. Uh, the first thing that we worship is that we worship ourselves. When we don't see God as creator, when we fail to see him as glorious, when we fail to see him as gracious and good and almighty, we naturally look to ourselves. And what we hold on to, most of us, we find our identity, we find our purpose, we find our value, we find our meaning, and what we're good at. 
And so if we're good at something, that's the thing we're going to hold up to. We're going to judge everybody else around us ultimately to that. And we're going to judge ourselves to it. So if we're doing good, whatever, whatever it may be, if it's education, if it's sports, if it's parenting, it's our job, if it's money making, then we'll feel superior. And we judge ourselves by what we're good at. Or we judge ourselves by what we want to be good at. And so some of us want to be good at certain things and we're not. And so we feel inferior. And so, so our position can go either highs or lows, which ultimately is pride at its very heart. On one level, it's pride because you're trusting in your own abilities to do something instead of looking at God who's given you those abilities. And the other side, it's pride too, even though it looks a little different and, and just being insecure because you're trusting your abilities as well and you're just upset because you can't do it instead of trusting in God. This is, this is self-glorification. It's looking to yourself, it's feeding yourself, and putting yourself up and setting yourself up in a position of worship. The, the next way that we turn to is we turn to others, and we turn to the approvals of, uh, approval of others. So naturally what we do is we gain our, our meaning, we, we gain our justification by what people say about us. If people think that we're really good people, then we find ourselves good in people. If people think we're smart, we find ourselves being smart. Uh, in college, I used to always notice this, that people I would say, man, you're really, really smart. Let me sit next to you at the text next week, right? And, and, and they just, oh, no, no, I'm not smart. I'm not smart. But internally, you know what they knew? I have to be smart because people think I'm smart. Oh, you're, you're really good at this. If someone says you're good at that, then you better be good at that because that's your identity. You, you, you have to receive the praises of people. I mean, this is an addictive thing. Um, one of the great thinkers in the African-American community, his name's Jay-Z. I don't know if you guys know him. A jig of what? So, so Jay-Z, Jay-Z and one of his sons, here's an unbelieving secular guy who, who says this, the worst, he says, he's speaking about famous, and he goes, this is the worst drug that's known to man, and he says it's stronger than heroin when you can look in the mirror like there I am and still not see what you become, and then he says, I know I'm guilty of it too, but I'm not like some. So, so for a moment, he says, listen, this thing called famous, there's people loving you, there's people singing your praises, being in front of people, human approval, it's an amazing thing, but it's addictive. It's addictive, it's stronger than heroin because you can look in the mirror and see how jacked up you are and go, I know I'm jacked up, but at least I'm not like them. Meaning as long as there's somebody else that's a little bit worse than me, then I'm okay with myself. And so when we don't understand a creator and we don't see the supremacy of who God is, we don't see the glory of who God is, and we're not looking up to praises, naturally we will look horizontally and as long as I know that I'm better than somebody, then I'm okay, I'm okay. And so when instead of receiving the approval from a holy God because you're creating his image and he's placed his love on you, you reject that and you seek it for other people. This is insecurity at its best. And we're begging for it over and over again in overt ways and subvert ways. Just tell me how good I am. And in the same way that we're trying to seek approval, we're fearing the rejection of people. It's the reason why we lie. It's the reason why we're dishonest. Most, some of us, it's the reason why we're even here right now. And we internally wrestle with it. Even a guy like Jay-Z can see it, but he can't get himself out of it. The last thing that we see that, that, that we turn to is we turn to the creation. We turn to stuff. We turn to clothes. We turn to money. We turn to sex. We turn to drugs. We turn to alcohol. We turn to cars, bigger house. We just go from one thing to the next. If you, here, here's the deal. If you don't see a personal, loving, holy God, as a means to worship, excuse me, as the object of worship, then the thing that you'll do is you'll take what God created as a means to worship him and make it in itself the end goal. And here's where you'll end up. This is where we'll end up. Because if we had to be honest, I mean, all of us struggle with this at some level, myself included. I don't know if there's a week that doesn't go by that I'm asking my wife, man, well, I wonder what they think of me. And it's horrible. It's horrible. 
It's the one thing that drives me to the cross and knows that I need Jesus. Because here's what happens when we go to these things. It's addictive. I think Jay-Z was right. And so what it does, as soon as we get it, it runs away. And we got to get another high. And then as soon as we get it, we got to get another high, whatever it may be. It may be being known as being the good parent. It may be known as being the good Christian person. It may be known as a person who can serve, no matter what it looks like. Some of it looks holy and some of it looks unholy. But if it's not done out of a motivation for God, it just becomes something that we go, we go to over and over and over and over again. It's an addiction. And here's what happens. We end up bored. It's the reason why we jump from city to city It's the reason why we jump from church to church, from relationship to relationship. We get married for four to five years. We jump from that marriage to another marriage, from one school to another school, from one friendship to another friendship, is because we realize we cannot be satisfied by what is made. The only thing that can satisfy us is the creator himself, amen? I believe this, that boredom in itself is a result of sin. I think it's no wonder why Jesus says, why don't you guys have faith like kids? If you ever see young kids, you see young kids just don't get bored. They'll, I mean, they'll, they'll play with anything. They'll make, oh, this, this, what is this? Oh, it's a refrigerator, right? They'll just, they'll just, they'll just, they'll just make, they'll just make something up. Um, when, when my child was, a, or Noah was a little bitty kid, like six months old, we used to do this deal. We'd spin around, we'd poke him in the stomach, and he'd start laughing like, hey. and we'd turn around, we'd poke him in the stomach over and over and over again. He never got sick of it, and yet, we find ourselves getting sick of the same things over and over again. Here's a thought that I have. If God is eternal and he's always existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's never gotten sick of himself, how do we get sick of him? It has to be a result of sin. It has to be. G.K. Chesterton, in speaking of childlike faith, says this. Because children have abounding vitality, Because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all the daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. infancy, For we have all sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. If we ever are going to get to the point that we can glorify God, and and which the purpose of which God made us, there's only one thing we can do is we have to be motivated by his love. It has to be the love that the Father and that the Son and that the Spirit has in the Trinity. That God, we have to see it. We have to see how much he loves us. If we don't, we'll constantly continue to look to other things. Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse two says this, for the, talking about Jesus, the ultimate one who glorified the Father on our behalf. It says that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him because of the joy that was so before him. So the the author tells us to look to Jesus who endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. That that is beautiful because ultimately God is glorified through the suffering of his son, but we have to ask the question of this eternal God and namely his son, Jesus Christ. What was the joy? 
What, what, what is it that made him endure the cross? What is it that, that sustained him? What is it that motivated him to go through the excruciating pain of the cross for people like us who have rejected him and worshiped ourselves and others and people's approval to now draw us back to himself that we may do what we were intended to do, praise him. What was the joy? So the question is, well, maybe it was, um, maybe, maybe it was to be back with the Father. That, that can't be the answer because why would he leave heaven? He was already with the Father. And so what made him leave heaven? And I think the answer is found in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is a prophetic passage speaking about Jesus, and he says this in verse 11. What was the joy that basically held him on the cross, motivated him to go through the pain? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11 says this, speaking of Jesus. Out of, his, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. For by the knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, for he shall bear their iniquities. What satisfied Jesus was knowing this. The joy that was set before him was knowing that he would have you. The only thing in heaven that God didn't have that he wanted so desperately, he didn't need, but out of love that he wanted, was us. And every single, pe- every single person that would believe in Jesus Christ. To the degree that you see that God is glorified in the Son, it's to the degree that you would see the love that he has for you, that you'll respond to him in love. When you see that God in himself said the joy, that's, the joy that motivated him was having us. Creation, that was lost. And so we don't have to be like August Rush and say, I want to be found. We know in Christ Jesus, in the gospel, we are found. Amen? It's in response to that love, the way that God loves us, the way the creator loves his creation, that we now, in all that we do and all that we say, we can be like the psalmist and say, who have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And there's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. And we can worship our great God and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we, thank, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who reveals yourself through creation. And yet, Lord, there is not one of us in this room who hasn't gone through a period of doubt. And doubt shows itself so often, Father, in unbelief in which we begin to worship everything else but you. And Lord, we pray that we would understand how much you love us, that we would see it. God, it would be fitting on this day, on a Father's Day, in which we in our country celebrate fathers, Lord, that we would look to you and ask that your Holy Spirit would indeed testify with our spirits that we are sons and that you are a good father and that your son Jesus has come, lived and has died and was resurrected and who is interceding on our behalf. Father, we confess to you the reason why we get bored so often, Father God, is because we really don't see the true eternal God. And so we, 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 we settle for things, Lord, that are, that are finite, that come and go. And Lord, the reflection upon that of our lives is that we come and go. And so God, we pray that you would give us the consistency that comes in knowing you and loving you. And Father, we pray that as we continue this series and the study of doctrine, that it would not just be intellect or head knowledge, but Lord, it would lead and it would result into praise of which we were made for, that we may worship you, Father, with all of who we are. And whether we eat or whether we drink, we would do it to the glory of your name. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.